The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Hi, one quick disclaimer. The audio quality of this message improves dramatically at around the six-minute mark. Uh, we continue to battle some technical issues, but we thank you for your patience, and we do pray that this message is a blessing to you. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We are continuing our series, Follow the Sun. Now, normally around this time of year, uh, it's, it's customary to preach sermons about the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, whether from the Old Testament prophecies which announce the events before they happened, or New Testament narratives of the events surrounding Jesus' birth, or a section of a New Testament letter about the significance. We've decided to continue in our Mark series instead. We think that God has providentially landed us right where we ought to be in this season. While these stories don't tell us how Jesus came, they continue to shape our understanding of why Jesus came. So this Sunday before Christmas will be in Mark 5, 21 to 43, and then next Sunday will be at the start of Mark chapter 6. And I'm going to preach these passages with an awareness of this Christmas season. I want to connect this, the middle, as it were, of Jesus' story, as told by the Gospel writer Mark, to the beginning of his story. So let's read then from Mark chapter 5, 21 to 43. This is God's holy word revealing God's holy one. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was by the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And told them to give her something to eat. So last summer when traveling was a thing that people still did. <laughs> Sam and I had the opportunity to visit New Orleans. That trip was part ministry. We were visiting uh, with one of our sister churches there. Lakeview Christian Center. Um, and I preached that Sunday, uh, but that was also right around our 15th wedding anniversary. So we were also celebrating together. On the Monday, we had the opportunity to take in the city. So we headed downtown to the waterfront. So we were trying to figure out what we could do with the limited time we had, you know, kind of what's the best way we can get to see New Orleans and experience as much of it as we could. So we had walked around a bit, we had been into a couple of restaurants, a couple of gift shops, um, and we were looking at options out by the waterfront and their relative costs and how long they take and stuff like that. And finally we agreed that we'd do a bus tour of the city. A bus tour. Now, to be honest, I have my reservations, but after 15 years of marriage, I've learned that I can run with Sam's ideas, even with reservations, because it's not so much about what we do, but about the fact that we're doing it together. We actually have very good memories. We have wonderful memories from what, were in, what ended up being bad experiences. <laughs> but this experience defied all of my expectations. Now, I'm sure there are boring bus tours, but that wasn't what, the, the one we had. What made our bus tour truly worthwhile was our guide. Now, you know, we saw this little lady coming up and we realized, okay, she's our guide. But once she started telling us about New Orleans, we were amazed. She didn't just take us through the city. She made the story of New Orleans come alive. She shared that she's a former high school teacher and she grew up in the city. And you can tell how much she loves the city and she knew its history. She spoke about the 400-year-long history of the many ethnic groups that had shaped the city and current events, including celebrity sightings, with equal ease. But what was particularly impressive was her ability to weave little details about particular road intersections, about the design of houses, uh, or a building that was formerly a hotel, or inscriptions on gravestones into one enlightening account about New Orleans. You could drive the exact same route that we did in that bus, and you could make all of the same stops that we did and not appreciate even a quarter of what we learned because we were traveling with this particular guide. My hope for you is that you'll have, and that you have been having, a similar experience with Mark. Mark is a masterful storyteller and a wonderful guide, taking us on what really is a brief and selective journey showing us Christ. 
Much like our guide in New Orleans, he is into details, and nothing he shares is insignificant. That quality is on full display in these stories that we've just read. And it unfolds quite nicely in scenes in the text. So I'm not going to add anything to it today. My job is really to help you to hear Mark and to understand how the details that he highlights in these stories put the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on display. So let's strap in and let's get moving through these stories and see what we find. Our passage begins with Jesus returning to Jewish territory. If you were here last week or if you're familiar with the text, you'll recall that Jesus had gone across the lake. Um, there was this massive storm all of a sudden, and Jesus had stilled the storm with a word, and they went across the lake, and then immediately they're confronted with this man with this legion of demons, and Jesus delivers him, and he becomes a witness to that in the Decapolis, which was this region of 10 Gentile cities. No, but of course, in the face of the resulting decimation of the regional pork supplies, the local neighborhood watch committee begged Jesus to keep on moving. And he obliged them. But now on his return to the other side of the lake, his return to Jewish territory, he is welcomed by a massive crowd. So immediately Mark is giving us a contrast here. That crowd is going to play a significant role in the drama of this text. What Mark Strauss points out proves to be true. Crowds in Mark are both an indicator of, of popularity and impediments to those trying to reach Jesus. We saw that in the story of the paralytic. Now, Mark introduces us to a man named Jairus. Names in ancient, in ancient accounts like these are very telling. We've met lots of people so far in our journey with Mark, uh, but very few whose names have been preserved. That tells us that Jairus was an important man. The text describes him as a ruler of the synagogue, which essentially means that he was an administrator in charge of the facilities and the activities of the local worship center. But this man with a high position was also in a desperate position. His little daughter was at death's door. We are not told the nature of her illness or how long she'd been ill, but she was barely hanging on. I don't know if I, well, I, I, I'm convinced you don't need to be a parent to imagine the kind of suffocating pain that this man would have been going through, helplessly watching his little one's demise. I was reading this text this week, and uh, later down in the text, we find out that his daughter was 12 years old. My own daughter had her 12th birthday this week, so it was just like just kind of trying to imagine what it would be like for us as parents to helplessly watch our daughter suffer, knowing that there's nothing that can be done. They, uh, Jairus had resources, remember. He's not, he, he, he's not somebody who couldn't have accessed the best doctors, the best care of the day, but here they were in this situation, and Jairus comes to Jesus. You see, Jairus came because he had heard stories of one who could help. One who could heal all kinds of illnesses with a touch and with a word. So when he saw Jesus, he didn't take the time to adjust his tie and to pull out his card to show his credentials. He threw himself on the ground at Jesus' feet, begging him, pleading with him in a most undignified way that he would come and lay his hands on his dying daughter so that she would live. And our text tells us simply that Jesus went with him. 
Now, think back on the storyline of Mark up to this point. Jesus started his ministry and he's been gathering disciples. He's been preaching the gospel uh, around the region of Galilee. He's been healing and delivering people. The crowds don't really get him, but they love him, evidenced by the large crowd that has welcomed him on his return now to Jewish territory. So who's been the main group of people who have taken issue with him and opposed Jesus up to now? Who, 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 who has he been having problems with? The Pharisees. Yeah, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. Jairus was a religious leader. So we see that not all the religious leaders were against Jesus. But here we also learn a lot about Jesus. Jesus was not against the religious leaders. It's not that Jesus was blindly for the poor and oppressed and against the ruling class. He's not playing that game. We live in a polarized time where it's commonplace to group people by race or socioeconomic status or political descriptors and assume that we know who they are and how they think and whether they are for us or against us. But that's not how Jesus thinks. He has already defied expectations by putting his followers before his family, by keeping the company of tax collectors and outcasts, by rescuing a Gentile man from Satan's grip. And now he welcomes one whom most would have assumed is allied with those who have made themselves his enemies. But Jesus isn't taking sides. He's distributing mercy. Jesus showed his compassion towards Jairus in his immediate willingness to go with him. And Jairus' posture showed that he knew how much he was in need of mercy and that he was putting his trust and his daughter's fate in the hands of Jesus. So Jairus and Jesus and a massive entourage set off for Jairus' house. Picture the scene. The massive crowd, is, it probably numbered thousands of people and they're thronging around him. Jairus' story was likely filtering through the crowd. People were like the same. Where are we going? Like, oh, we're going to Jairus' house. His daughter is sick. Jesus is going to come and heal her. And so everybody wanted to be around Jesus. Everybody wanted to be at the center of, of, of what's going on, to be eyewitnesses to this miracle. Now, Mark zooms the camera in and introduces us to another character who's going to play a significant role in the unfolding drama, a woman who is making her way through the throng as discreetly as she's able, yet with great determination, heading towards Jesus. We're told very little about this woman. We don't know her name or her approximate age. She, like many whom we have met in this gospel, is marked out from the nameless crowd only by her particular suffering. Our text describes her as having a discharge of blood for 12 years. The King James calls it an issue of blood. I mean, that, that's nice and fancy, but it doesn't necessarily help us to understand what's going on. What it almost surely means is that she was suffering from constant menstrual bleeding for 12 years, every day. Mark's cascading description takes us into the depths of this poor woman's plight. Doctor after doctor have been unable to cure her. And it sounds like the treatment was worse than the disease. She exhausted all her finances and impoverished herself seeking a solution. Despite all of this effort, her condition hadn't improved. In fact, it had worsened. Now, based on modern medicine, we understand that the constant blood loss would leave her weak and anemic. But 
It's not the lens of modern medicine, but that of Old Testament Jewish law that helps us to see the depths of her suffering. Because of how Leviticus connects life and blood, her constant worsening blood loss meant that she wasn't simply sick, she was dying slowly. The laws laid out in that book have an overarching concern with purity and impurity. We, we now understand that much of this was ceremonial rather than substantive, but to be a Jew was to be a part of a living dramatic illustration of the holiness of God. That meant, among other things, that any bodily discharge for men or, or women made you unclean for a period of time and required a cleansing ritual, even normal body, bodily discharges. Unclean people could not participate in the worship of God. So this woman would have been barred from going to the temple and from attending religious festivals for the entirety of those 12 years. But that's not the half of it. Her vaginal bleeding did not just make her ritually impure. That impurity was now contagious. Leviticus 15 is explicit in pointing out that anything she lay down on or sat on became unclean. And anyone who touched those things would have to bathe themselves and wash their clothes and would be unclean until the end of the day. But based on the fact that the law stated that if a woman having her period touched another person, then that person became unclean, then surely this woman would have been scorned by everyone who knew about her condition. Garland captures her abiding personal tragedy. She is walking pollution as the life force drains from her. I mean, to up the ante, she probably either was unmarried, which of course would disadvantage you in, disadvantage you in that society, or, or if she was married, that marriage probably would have ended because they would divorce for random reasons. Um, and she probably was also childless. This is the woman who is making her way stealthily through the massive crowds towards Jesus. Now, if you've ever had the experience of trying to make your way through a large crowd, maybe while attending an event, you're going into the stadium or into the arena for something, I mean, you know it's not easy. Especially if you're trying to stay with people. It's just like, how do I keep this group together as we move through this crowd? I mean, you're bumping into people, they're bumping into you. And if all these people were orbiting around Jesus, he would have been the hardest person to get to in that crowd. But none of that incidental contact mattered to her in the face of the contact that she was determined to make. You see, she had heard stories of Jesus. And she believed what she heard. One of the reasons that we are called to share our own stories of Jesus, however simple and mundane they seem, is that by God's grace, others hear our stories and they believe that Jesus is worth coming to. This woman had heard the reports that Jesus was healing all kinds of illnesses and that suffering people were desperately trying to touch him. And Mark tells us in verse 28 that she reasoned, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, now her belief and the behavior of others may have been based on a common superstition that a person's virtue or power could be transmitted through their clothing. But even if that was the case, Mark doesn't seem concerned with that detail. He wants us to notice something else. He wants us to see a vivid picture of faith. James Edward comments, To act on what one hears about Jesus is always in Mark the sign of a disciple. And this is what the woman does. She made it to Jesus and she touched his clothing. 
And immediately the bleeding stopped. And she knew it. She could feel it. Now, can you imagine how she felt in that moment? The internal sense of decay that she had carried every single day for 12 years was suddenly gone, replaced by what must have felt like the strangest sensation. She felt well. But immediately the crowd stopped. Jesus had stopped, and that would have brought the whole procession to a sudden halt. And you can imagine people kind of bumping up into the persons in front of them, because all of a sudden we're moving and then everybody stops. And Jesus had turned around. Verse 30 is so surprising, I need to read it again for you. Take a look at it with me in your Bibles. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? This verse captures the divinity and humanity of Jesus marvelously yet mysteriously. And that's a mystery that we celebrate each Christmas in the Incarnation. We already sang about this mystery this morning. As he sleeps upon the hay, he holds the moon and stars in place. Though born an infant, he remains the sovereign God of endless days. Now we see that same mystery in this text. When the woman touched Jesus' clothing, he experienced that contact in a different way from any other movement that brushed his robe that day. Power went out from him. The kind of power that could instantly heal a chronic condition that had confounded doctors. It doesn't do justice to Mark's account to see Jesus as merely a spirit-empowered man. No, here, Jesus is the source of the power. That's why when Peter and Paul, Jesus' representatives uh, in the book of Acts, worked similar miracles, they attributed the miracles to Jesus himself. And Mark's perspective is that Jesus' power, like God's power, is inexhaustible. It's not like he had to stagger around for a bit there and like, whoa, what just happened? You know, I need a little break. No, he's going to leave this scene and walk away and raise a little girl from the dead. Even when he was physically tired, again, a testament to the reality of his humanity, he stilled a storm with a word. Mark doesn't say that Jesus is God. That's not the approach he has chosen. Instead, he's provided us with snapshot after snapshot, like a crime scene photographer that reveals the truth about Jesus' identity, with the expectation that we, his readers, will find in these stories conclusive evidence to hang our hats on, a firm foundation for our faith. Power went out from Jesus and healed this woman, yet Jesus in his humanity is unaware of whom it is that he has healed. He's looking for the person who has accessed his power. Just over a week ago, a new statement of faith was officially approved for our denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches. That whole process has taken six years, and we, your elders, have been participating in it for the last two or so years. And we're very excited about this statement of faith and how it will serve us here at GFC. Relevant both to this season and this passage, here's the understanding that our statement of faith faith lays out about the incarnation of Jesus and his two natures. So follow me carefully. It's a little long, but it's touching on a lot of things that we're, we're thinking about right now in this season. In the fullness of time, God the Father sent his eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world as Jesus the Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, 
taking on himself a fully human nature with all its attributes and frailties, yet without sin. In this union, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person of the divine Son without confusion, mixture, or change. Our Redeemer acted in and through both his human and divine natures in ways appropriate to each, with both natures being preserved and neither being diminished by the other. Yet both his human and divine natures are united and find expression in one person, in the one person of the eternal Son. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, is fully God and fully man. Sometimes it's hard when you read an explanation that's still so mysterious. <laughs> but we, our, our, our responsibility as those who read the scriptures is to gather the data from the scriptures and keep it consistent with how it presents itself. And that's what we see in this text. We see two things which don't seem to come together. How could she have been healed by Jesus, yet Jesus was unaware of who was healed? So this single moment displays Jesus' limitless power and his limited knowledge. He's fully God and fully man. What a mystery it is. In response to Jesus' question, the disciples come center stage. Boss, Jesus, sometime, you know, you know, she said the people, them, a bunks, bunks against you. The whole way I get crushed right now. How do you mean who touched me? I mean, and their response makes sense, doesn't it? But as is often the case, they are missing the point. They're out of touch with Jesus. And Jesus isn't deterred by them. He's still scanning the crowd around him. He's determined to find that person who was so determined to reach him. Again, imagine how the woman must have been feeling at this point. Her brief and scarcely believable private joy is interrupted by this public searchlight. Why is he looking for me? I already got what I came for. Does he want everyone to know? Did I take something that I shouldn't have? For the second time that day, someone threw themselves at the feet of Jesus. When I read this text, I wonder about the many reasons this woman would have to come in fear and trembling and, and bowing before Jesus. But Mark points us to the main one. In verse 33, he says, knowing what had happened to her. She, like the disciples in the boat the day before, had experienced the power of God, and she knew she was in the presence of one who was utterly awesome. And right then and there, she told Jesus and those around him the whole truth. She told her story. It was through, the, through this disclosure that her healing was completed. Even though she had approached Jesus in faith, what she was after was so much less than what God had in mind. She thought she was in need of something, in need of a cure, and she was hoping at best for a quick and impersonal transaction. But someone had... Sorry, let me say that again. But the someone that she had come in contact with had so much more to give her. Look at verse 34. Jesus spoke to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He affectionately called her daughter. This is the only time in Mark he uses this term to anyone. 
She thought that she could not approach him directly to ask for what she needed. But here she was, kneeling before him, exposed by surrendering her anonymity and her story, and he was addressing her, an outcast, as family. He said to her, your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you. That verb can also be translated, saved you, which hints, at more than a, hints, which hints that more than a physical healing may have taken place here. We'll talk a bit more about faith in a while, but here's something tremendously interesting. The, the Levitical law required that she now wait a week and then go through a cleansing literal, uh, ritual sorry, administered by a priest in order to be restored to community. Earlier in Mark, you might recall that Jesus had instructed a leper whom he had cleansed to do what the law required. But he doesn't do that here. He essentially waives any further requirement, welcomes her back into community, and pronounces peace on her, wholeness, a comprehensive blessing. So he's not just her healer, he's acting as her priest. He could do that because he came to make atonement for all who would trust in him. What she already sensed, Jesus now pronounces over her in the hearing of everyone around. Be healed of your disease. Her healing and her restoration to community are indisputably complete. Let's think for a moment about faith as we see it in this story. Once again, Mark doesn't give us a systematic theology. That's not how he's approaching things. He's telling us stories, and he's going to tell us many more stories of faith. He already started in chapter 2. But let's focus on the details here for a bit. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has made you well. But what does that mean? Does it mean that faith was the power that healed her? I mean, a lot of people teach that idea, right? But that's like confusing power lines with electricity. Power lines are only useful if they're connected to a source of power. The story tells us that the power was resident in Jesus. So faith is profitable based on the object of that faith. Faith then is how the woman accessed Jesus' power, uh, how we receive from God. But is that receiving automatic? It doesn't appear from this text that Jesus chose to heal this woman. It feels like she just took her healing. And when you're desperate, and particularly when you wonder if God would choose to give you what you desire, that kind of idea can seem very attractive. Let's just focus on faith, on generating enough faith to draw from God whatever we want. But that very attractive idea in some ways has a very unattractive consequence. If all that happened here was that Paul went out of Jesus because of demand and there was no intentionality on the supply side, then this woman did not experience God's love for her in her healing. But such love was evident in Jesus' conversation with her. God's mercy is sovereignly bestowed, which means that it's personal and not mechanistic. So we can read between the lines with the lens of the rest of the Bible. God, who was pleased by this woman's faith, bestowed healing on her, which Jesus then consciously ratifies and completes through the personal interaction. His conversation with her completes the picture. So what then is faith? We're seeing it on display here. Is it strength? Is it determination? I mean, that's somewhere in the mix, but that's not where the accent seems to be. 
The resolve of faith coexists with weakness and helplessness and desperation and humility. And faith is not focused on any of those things as assets or liabilities. Strauss offers us some help. Faith is recognizing that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves and expressing our full dependence on God's saving power. Faith looks to Jesus for salvation. And that's what this woman did. That's what Jairus did. And it's high time we got back to this man who has been waiting on the sidelines during this whole encounter. How do you think Jairus was feeling throughout all of this? Remember, he came to Jesus with urgency because moments mattered. His daughter was hanging on to life by a thread. And thankfully, Jesus was willing to go with him immediately. But it seemed that circumstances were conspiring against him. Why, why them people won't go about them business, man? Exactly. And then Jesus stops? What do you mean somebody touch him? And, and then this woman, I mean, who is she? And, and she's telling her whole story right now, right here? This important man in urgent need was kept waiting for the sake of this anonymous woman. Even if she was suffering greatly, even if she was dying slowly, his daughter was dying fast. Do you ever feel like Jesus has forgotten that you're waiting on him? I mean, as far as you are concerned, you need him right now. But he seems blissfully unaware that things are getting worse with every passing moment. I have been in that place more times than I can count. But let this story reassure you. Even when Jesus could only be in one place at one time, he was never late and never too far away. And he's nearer to you than he ever was to Jairus or to that woman. The waiting is about growing in faith. You see, this encounter had dramatically changed the circumstances for Jairus. In one ear, Jairus was hearing Jesus pronounce healing and blessings on the woman, and in the other, he was hearing news that shattered his world. His daughter, his baby girl was dead. They were too late. I mean, Jesus had healed the sick. He had healed this woman. But surely, now that she was dead, not even Jesus could do anything. Why trouble the teacher any further, they said. Jesus overhears and ignores the comment and addresses Jairus simply and directly. Do not fear. Only believe. Jairus had come to Jesus fearing for his daughter's life, but believing that Jesus could save her. No, even in the face of death, Jesus was calling him to believe still, to believe more, to look beyond the dire circumstances and to see Jesus. And the woman who interrupted their journey exemplified the faith that Jairus now needed. She pushed through to Jesus in defiance of her circumstances. He must hold on to Jesus in defiance of his. Now Jesus dismisses the crowd. They have played their role. And he takes with them only Peter and James and John, the three that would become his inner circle. When they got to Jairus' house, he would have to contend with another crowd, a crowd of mourners making a commotion. In the U.S. and Europe, you'll hear of ambulance chasers. You know, lawyers who are just kind of waiting around for somebody to get into an accident or, or, or for an accidental death. Down here, we're used to the vendors who are attracted to funerals like bees to honey. 
In that culture, those who profited from death were the professional mourners. Even a poor person was expected to hire, and I quote, no less than two flute players and one wailing woman. Yeah, poor people, the custom was they had to hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Yes, the poor people. Yes. So back then, death was expensive too. Now, Jairus, of course, was a man of means. Strauss points out that the volume and intensity of the mourning was viewed as an indicator of the great love for, of the great love for the deceased. And Jairus was an important client, so the body did turn up. Jesus quiets the noise and says, the child is not dead but sleeping. And all of a sudden, the cow bawling become bell laughing, which shows who they really were. If they had loved Jairus or his daughter, they would probably have been angry with Jesus for interrupting their grief with such absurdity. But this was outright ridiculous. As far as death was concerned, they were the professionals, not this teacher. Jesus was most definitely misdirecting them in what he said. And this death was not permanent because he had come to raise her up. So Jesus exercised the unbelieving mourners and he took the girl's parents and the trio of disciples into where the girl lay. It's in these moments that you really begin to feel the effect of Peter's eyewitness testimony on Mark's account. He tells us what Jesus did and what he said in that little room that had very few witnesses. He took the little girl by the hand and he spoke to her in Aramaic, which was basically the people's language of the day. It was not a magic spell that he spoke. Mark translates it for us. It simply means, little lady, get up. It was not what Jesus said that raised the girl to life again. It was who said it. And just like that, she took a breath and opened her eyes. And of course, her parents and the disciples are left utterly speechless. And Jesus insisted that they remain speechless and not spread this news. This was not the resurrection he would want everyone to know about. That one will come later. This little girl would eventually die again someday. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he had indestructible life. He wouldn't just push back death for a while. He would defeat it forever. This resurrection was merely a picture and a pointer to that resurrection. Finally, he told them, give her something to eat. Maybe so that they'd be sure she wasn't a ghost, but surely because he was concerned about this little girl who probably wasn't eating very much while she was dying. There's so much to see in these stories when you step back a little bit. I want to spend just a couple minutes x-raying them. In the Old Testament, God is the only one who has the power over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. In separate stories in the Old Testament, when the prophets Elijah and Elisha raised someone from the dead, they prayed to God. I think Elijah actually stretches himself out over the dead body three times and he appeals to God. Jesus does not pray at all. He just speaks. Again, Mark is revealing Jesus' divinity. And Jesus' actions are revealing the nature of the kingdom he came to inaugurate. He is reversing the effects of the curse, pushing back sickness and death. 
When the kingdom comes in its fullness, as Revelation 21.4 says, death shall be no more, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One of the reasons that we can be so confident of that promise is the preview that we have been given in these stories. There's another theme that's woven into the fabric of these stories, and we'll come to the surface in chapter 7. We've already highlighted the uncleanness of the woman, but realize that Jesus coming to lay his hands on a sick girl is one thing. His holding the hand of a dead girl is an entirely different matter. Dead bodies were considered unclean, and to touch them would make one ritually unclean. In the Old Testament, uncleanness is contagious, as we've said, but holiness is actually deadly in the Old Testament. Unclean people in the presence of a holy God are in mortal danger. But in these stories, Jesus does not contract the impurity of the woman or of the dead girl. Instead, he imparts purity and life. Through Jesus, the holy is transforming the broken and the profane. Mark sandwiches the story of the healing of the woman between the two parts of the account of, of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And remember, Mark is not simply telling the events as they happened. He wasn't compelled to tell the story of the woman because it happened. He's actually preaching. So what's illuminated as he does this kind of sandwich? Let's backtrack quickly. We couldn't help but notice in the story how this woman had to approach Jesus. She didn't seek an audience with him. She worked her way through the crowd and discreetly touched him. But think about Jairus. He came to Jesus, falling on his knees, mind you. But the text says that there was a great crowd gathered around Jesus. How was Jairus able to make it to Jesus in order to make his request? Probably because of his status. He was an important man, the kind of man whom others would give way to once they realized that he was coming. Mark is contrasting these two people who were in need. Jairus, a man with a name and status and importance, and an anonymous woman who was impure and an outcast due to her ailment. When we come to Jesus, status does not get us in or keep us out. What matters is faith. David Garland summarizes it really well. Faith enables all, honored and dishonored, clean and unclean, male and female, to tap into the merciful power of Jesus that brings both healing and salvation. Further, both people who receive mercy in this text are women, and women were not highly valued in comparison to men in either Jewish society or Roman society. But Jesus gave them his attention and worked on their behalf ending 12 years of dying for the woman and extending 12 years of life for the little girl. The affection and compassion of the king extends even to those others would overlook. When last have you admired a sunset? Often when we talk about admiring a beautiful sunset, what we're actually admiring is how the rays of the sun are coloring the clouds and the sky with orange and pink and violet hues and creating brilliant white burning edges, or the way the setting sun is silhouetting the mountains or reflecting off the sea. We experience the magnificence of the sun through its interactions with other things. Today, we have seen the magnificence of God's sun through his interactions with other people. His glory and the glory of his coming kingdom is seen in these stories. It's reflected and shines through these encounters with an impoverished, invisible woman and a powerful, prominent man, both with their backs against the wall. 
And there are so many hues on display here. He is gentle and powerful. He is a calming yet commanding presence. He's attentive and compassionate. He receives those who come to him in faith. Nothing about them can privilege them, and nothing about them can disadvantage them. The king welcomes all who come to him in faith, and in his kingdom there will be no disease and no death. And this is the sum of all of it. Through faith, anyone can receive mercy from the compassionate king who rules even over life-threatening disease and death. Jesus is still the compassionate king. He has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was born to overcome death, the fate that we all face because of sin, by dying in our place and rising to life so that all who trust in him would enjoy a resurrection like his on the day that he returns. That means that despite the uncertainty and fear that has gripped the whole world in these times, we know that our hope is unshakable as we trust in him. As believers, we can face our current circumstances and our future prospects anchored by his reassuring words. Do not fear, only believe. We know the one who came. We know that he reigns. We know that he is compassionate towards us. We know that his kingdom is coming. Everything in between is just details. But every detail matters to him. That's where his love to us is displayed in mercy for everyone who trusts in him. Do not fear, only believe. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.